Good morning. Acts 18, our 10th study on seeking and saving in the book of Acts. So next week we're going to get into the final 10 chapters and talk about the making of a testimony. So Acts 18, when are we done? Good question, right? Well, I'm going to answer that as best as I can this morning. When are we done? Now, before we get into the text itself, I thought it would be good just to put a map up there and take the second missionary journey with Logos Bible maps. And can you see those numbers? If you can't, I understand. So, this is Antioch is where Paul's home, Paul the Apostle's home church was from where he was sent out on these three and then finally a fourth journey to Rome. Three missionary journeys. This is the second one. And so number one there is Paul and Silas left Antioch and they began to strengthen the churches in Syria and Cilicia. They were bringing with them the letter that came from the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 about what was required for salvation and what they were to hold to as Christians. Number two, Timothy joins the apostles and is circumcised uh, in, at Lystra. In, in numbers, number three there, the apostles then, leaving there, traversed Phrygia and Galatia. They were forbidden to preach in Asia. They approached Mysia. They wished to try Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit forbid them. So they go to Troas, and this is where in Troas where they hook up with Luke, the, the one who wrote both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And the reason we know that is because in Acts 16.10, the pronoun changes from they to we. So uh, Luke joins them, and then he, he's left there later on and doesn't again join up in Acts until uh, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 5 during the missionary journey, a third missionary journey. So in number 6, there's the Macedonian call at Troas. In number 7, then, they're ministering at Philippi. Lydia, that's where the story of Lydia, Paul and Silas are beaten and imprisoned. Luke and Timothy remain in Philippi. Luke stayed there again until the third missionary journey. In, in chapter 17 then, number 8, the ministry at Thessalonica. Again, persecution, Jason. This is probably where these two guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, joined Paul. Number 9, persecution again heads down to Berea, where Paul then is forced to go over to Athens. Paul preaches there in Athens on Mars Hill in Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. It is now that Paul arrives at Corinth, number 11, in chapter 18. He's joined there by Paul and Silas in Corinth. He's joined there by Paul and Silas. We'll see that this morning. Paul then takes Aquila and Priscilla, again we'll meet them this morning, and goes over to Ephesus. He leaves Aquila and Priscilla there and he himself makes his way back to Caesarea. He goes and visits the Jerusalem church, heads back up to Antioch. In verse 23 then, we find in chapter 18, the beginning of the third missionary journey uh, in Acts 18. It'll take us through the 21st chapter. So there you have it. If that helps, I'm glad it does. It helps me just to see it visually. So what are we about? Or when are we done? And the question, obviously, done with what? In the context of our 10 series in the, book of, the whole book of Acts, when are we done seeking and saving? Or when are we done with the Great Commission? And I think you can answer that as believers, we're never done. God's given us this commission. In fact, I wanted to read it with you. We've talked about it a lot. Matthew account, chapter, 
verse 28 and verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them. The end of the book of Matthew, every one of the gospels has the great commission of some fashion. This is from Matthew. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus is the head. He's the authority. He's the one sending us out. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, baptizing them. They're getting saved. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And everyone said, amen. That's the great commission. Now, it is a lifetime commission for this reason. There are many more people who are unsaved than saved. That's the deal. So they outnumber us dramatically. There's a whole world out there of people that need Jesus Christ. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now we as a church are partnering with many, many different outreaches. Whether it's locally or in the whole world. I wanted to point one out specifically this morning. Andy and Suzanne Kim, who have a ministry, involved in the ministry of Vision School, which we had classes here. Next Sunday on July 1st, leave for a two-week trip, missions trip to Morocco. Now, Morocco is an unreached nation. 99.9% .9 are Muslim. It's very exciting what they're doing. They're following Luke chapter 10. They're, they're following a pattern. They've been doing this, this ministry. It, it's, it's going worldwide. It's amazing. A lot of young people going out. And this is what they're going to do. They're going to be dispatched in small teams, usually two, sometimes three, traveling from town to town, meeting and befriending the locals, staying in their homes, Again, in faith, bringing little money and no set accommodations, God providing. They're going to preach the gospel in the homes, laying hands on the sick, praying for healing, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, just like Jesus told his disciples to do. And it's amazing what's happening. We will, he writes, we will rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us to the souls he has prepared and to speak through us in their language. So I want to encourage you again in the Great Commission. There are many ways that God's sending us out. This is just one that's happening here. We are really excited about that, what God's doing there. So they've set up a booth by the connection desk. I hope you'll go by and look at it. It's amazing what, what they have set up there. They're going to have these, uh, for financial support, these kids' activity jars for a donation of $10 just to help. Not so much them, but all these that are going out that don't have the support. Many young people are going out and experiencing this. So that, to me, is really exciting. So... Jesus said this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The context with that is, the, is his conversation with a Samaritan woman who didn't know. and was saying, why are you a Jew speaking to a Samaritan? In the context of that whole discussion, his disciples saying, why are you talking to that woman? So they leave to go get some food. They come back and Jesus said, my food is to do the will of who sent me and to finish his work. They're saying, well... Did you eat yet? <laughs> Did you already eat? He goes on to say this. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? This is John chapter 4. Behold, I say to you, this is what you say. There are still four months and then comes the harvest. But I say to you, and they're looking out at the fields. Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this, saying, in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Jesus is speaking about the Great Commission. He's saying, lift up your eyes and look. They're looking at physical fields. He's saying, look at the Samaritan woman. She had come back with a whole bunch of people from the city. He's saying, the fields are white for harvest. We're told to pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. In other words, that's us. I'd say whenever you pray that, you're praying for yourself. Lord, send out laborers. That's us. We're called to this great commission. John Wesley said this, you have one business on earth, and that is to save souls. Carl Henry put it this way, I love it. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. So we have a very urgent message as the believers, as believers, as the church. Sobering statistics. Over 39% of active believers consider the Bible as the literal word of God. 39%. Less than 2% ever memorize the word of God on a regular basis. Listen, if we let loose the word of God, everything else starts to be let loose. Last week, if you were here, Marquis Laughlin mentioned a well-known pastor that is saying we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Now, I read up on that. I found out who it is. I'll let you do that research. But he, in defending himself, said, you go listen to the message. That's not what I'm saying. I went and listened to the message, and that's exactly what he's saying. You let loose the word of God, the Old Testament. We don't need that. 33% of the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. We believe that the book, the whole book, and nothing but the book is God's inspired word, and we dare not unhitch ourselves from that. In fact, I would say if someone's teaching that, you need to unhitch yourself from him or her. But 39% of active believers consider the Bible literal word of God, and that's continuing to decline. Um, our, our worship director, Dan, he has been all over the world in ministry, many churches. You talk, I mean, many, big ones involved in that. When he came here, and this blew my mind, he just told me this. We've had, he, he now is, is seeking for another place for employment because we, he, we decided it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit for him, just so you know that. All good, but difficult, painful, obviously, always, when, when there's changes. Uh, but anyway, he told me when he came uh, in talking to him, he said he had never been to a church that taught through the Bible. And he was saying, I love it. And I have seen this so many times when people come and they've never had just going through the Bible. They love it. I say, it seems so simple. <laughs> anyway, I'm getting off here, which means I'm going to go longer and I don't want to do that. Okay. So listen, another sobering statistic, less than 20% follow the biblical principle of giving. Only 5% have shared their faith with a non-believer. Where do you fit in the, st in the statistics? I hope we're beating those statistics as a church. Beating those statistics individually is how that will happen. More than half attend church once a month or less. That's become normal. Pastor Chris Songson of South Hills Church in South Ca Southern California, in response to these statistics, wrote this, quote, Something has to change. Casual attendance and the belief that others will serve, give, and share the gospel are tearing down the churches across the country brick by brick. As believers, it is time that we're either all in or we get out. The solution is simple, 
quit. And he wrote a book called Quit Church. He's not saying quit church. What he says is this. If we quit the casual way that we approach God's principles, can you imagine what would happen if our pers- in our personal walks of faith and in our community of believers, unquote. Can you imagine? How do you stop a force like that? You can't. That's what we're looking at with Paul and many of these that are reading the book of Acts. Now, this past week, we spent the week, Monday, Monday through Friday, praying for our church. We began for two days just praying about the gospel, praying that we would be gospel bearers because, in fact, the armor in Ephesians 6, we got to strap on our gospel shoes. So God's given to us this formidable weapon of the gospel, the word of God, the sword, to go out marching orders, the Great Commission. Can you imagine what would happen if that was just what, was, what we were all doing? Seeing people and speaking to people. And we need the Holy Spirit. I understand that. I believe that. I pray for that. But we prayed this whole week for our church. And we began with the gospel. And then we encompassed many of these similar things. Just praying for our church. Because we are all in, in like manner tending to wander. Tending to get away from the things. Because the gospel and the Christian life, we'll look at this in a minute, is not an easy road. It's difficult. To walk with Christ in this rebellious world. But there's no other thing worth it except the gospel. And so, something else struck me. And I'd never had this. I've been in a lot of prayer meetings. As we're praying, sometimes we had 30 at times, less at times. But I thought, you know, as we're praying, and we're all agreeing. When one person prays a prayer, and there's 30 people there, that's 30 prayers up to God. I said, yeah, that's multiplication like crazy. So if we're in a prayer, we're meeting, there's 30 times that same prayer is being praised. And we are to pray so we don't lose heart and offer up and ask and keep asking and seek and keep. So we did that this week. And I believe that God's going to move out. But we must respond in like kind and not be casual about our Christianity. And so we come to Christ. We are done with a casual approach to doing the will of God. We are either all in or we will look back. We will. We are either all in or we will wander. We're either on the straight and narrow or we'll be on the broad one. And that's what happens. So prayer, as you know, is essential that we're praying for each other and praying for our church and praying for these things to happen. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 18. After, after these things, Paul departed from Athens to Corinth. Let me tell you about the city of Corinth. It was corrupt bar none. It was a militarily strategic, a 2,000-foot cliff overlooked it. But commercially, it was, it was very profitable to live in Corinth. But it was a corrupt city, very corrupt. It was a playground for any kind of immorality. When plays depicted drunkards and revelers, they were told to, quote, act the Corinthian, unquote. The Corinthians had an awful reputation even in the world. As you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, everything he wrote was in warning and correcting them concerning that same corruption getting into the church because it had in Corinth. So chapters one through three, the world's elitism, sectarianism, this whole thing of exclusivity had gotten into the church. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm here. I'm there. Where there was no unity, it was divisive. 
He addresses sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. Sexual immorality was very acceptable in Corinth. Homosexuality was paraded as a lifestyle acceptable. The temple of Aphrodite was there. A thousand priestesses, really prostitutes, descended down every night into Corinth, and they had revelry going on and sexual immorality all over the place. It's interesting to me that 1 Corinthians 13, written to this church, is the love chapter in the Bible. It says this is what love is, not what you're doing. He then, in chapter 17, uh, 7 of 1 Corinthians, marriages and families were falling apart. Idolatry was rampant in Corinth. It became, it got into the church. Self-centered irreverence for the sacred things of God had entered into the church in Corinth. So they were coming to the Lord's table and it was a party. These are the things that he addresses. You see, it's a very tragic testimony when the church is no different than the world. When the world has more impact on the church than the church has on the world. And I know you would say amen to that. Of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, where Jesus sent a letter to them through John, five of them were called to repentance. The only two who were not were the persecuted church and the faithful church. But to every five of them, he said, repent. There's a need to change. There's a need for correction. And Jesus loves his church. That's why he tells us to repent. He's saying these things ought not to be happening in the church. The church ought to be impacting the world, not the other way around. You see, here's the deal. We are done when God is done. We are done with sin and lesser things. For Hebrews chapter 12, after that great chapter in 11, the the, the uh, hall of faith. He begins chapter 12. He's going through all the died by faith and persecute all those that, that died with not having received the promise. And then he gets into chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, because of chapter 11, all these witnesses, therefore, since we are, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and the weight that every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, Let's lay it aside. Let's be done with sin, done with lesser things. We all right? And he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus will never write into our lives sin and lesser things. He's the author of our faith, and we're done with lesser things. We're done with sin. He says there, for the joy that was set before, looking at you, who for the joy that was set before him endured what? The cross, despising its shame, and now is sat down at the right hand of God. That's the, that's the end. That's what Jesus went through. He endured those things for us, the cross, looking unto him. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We look unto Jesus. He's the one that enables us and gives to us that, that needed uh, love to get out in that world and we're done with lesser things. We're going to be done with sin. Consider who endured such hostility from sin against it, lest you become weary and discouraging souls. And then he says this, verse 4. For you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. 
God, you got to help us. you got to help us to be done with sin, done with lesson. And then he goes on and says, for your, um, for, you've forgotten the exhortation that speaks to you as the sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That's not pretty. It's, it's painful. But because he loves us, he's saying, let's be done with that sin. Let's put it away. That's what we're done with. We're done with sin. We're done with lesser things. We're done with being conformed to this world. We want to impact the world, not be conformed to it. So Romans chapter 12, you got Hebrews 12, then go to Romans 12. I beseech you therefore, after he talks about the gospel, 1 through 8, he talks about the, the nation Israel, God's not done with Israel. And then he says in, Hebrew, in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, looking back, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed. That means shaped with this world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We're done with being conformed to the world. We are done loving the world. John said this in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world, for all that is in the world. And then he names them. The, the, all that is in the world. No, oh, do not love the world. Okay, hold on. I'm going to slow down because I'm getting excited. <laughs> do not love the world or the things that are in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, that are, are our passions. The lust of the eyes, our passions out from under the authority of God. Our passions, the lust of the eyes, our possessions. Is God against our possessions? Not at all. But are they submitted to him? And the pride of life, looking for position in the world. All that, he said, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is what? Passing away. But those who do the will of God will abide. Hey, we are done with loving the world. We are done minimizing the importance of how we live in this world. We're done with that. Second Corinthians, again, to the same city he's in. Chapter 5, verse 1. We know, oh, this is such a glorious passage. We know that if our earthly tent, if, if our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. You got that? Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Yes, I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. God says, Kevin is mine. I've sealed him. And I've got this promise before me that when this tent, this temporary dwelling place, my body is dissolved, I have a building from God, not made with hands, that is eternal in the heavens. And God's prepared me for that and is preparing me yet. So we are always confident knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Can you say amen to that? Hey, we want to be done with lesser things, done with sin, done with being conformed to the world, done with loving the world. Done, we're, not, we're done with minimizing the importance of how I live in this world because there's coming a day. And notice what he goes on. Next verse. Therefore, when you ever read therefore, you say, what's it? Therefore. Well, he just told us we're going to be taken to the rapture and in death in this new body. 
He says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether absent or present, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in what? The body, the tent, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We are going to give an account, brothers and sisters, in the Lord. And we need to be done minimizing that how we live in this world matters. It does matter. Not for salvation, but what I think, I just say, Lord, I don't want to regret how I live my life for you when I stand before you. I don't say, oh, I'm sure there'll be some of that. And he's going to wash away every tear. But he says this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And so, Holy Spirit, I say, persuade me on these matters. It matters how I live. I don't want to minimize that. Listen, the world is not our final home. Can I hear an amen? This world is temporary at best. It's like a, James says it's a vapor. You ever watch a vapor? When I come in on Sunday mornings early on the river road there, they have these sprinklers that go off. And when it's a hot day before, uh, the road is hot. Even when I come in early in, on Sunday morning, they have the sprinklers going. And so they hit the pavement. And as I drive in, there's this mist it's sort of this, this vapor that sort of descends, uh, ascends up. That's what our life is like. You know, it's, it's like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. This world is not our home. But listen, it is our foreign mission field. That's what we're here for. We got a mission field out there. In fact, Paul calls us ambassadors. You know what an embassy is? It's a little taste of a country surrounded, putting right in the middle of another country, a foreign country. And in that, in that little alcove there, in that little embassy, it's just like America. But outside, it's nothing like America. And those ambassadors will go out and represent America to that, to that country. That's what we're, we're, we're ambassadors. We're, we're sort of plunged, put into this, into this uh, world to be ambassadors, to, to represent God and the kingdom of God to a foreign world. It's a foreign, I, Jesus said this, as he's getting, John 17, as he's getting ready to go to the cross, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. I pray for them, for those whom you've given me, that they, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those you have given me, that they may be one as we are. He's saying, let them be, let them be that little unity of an embassy in the world. He's saying that about his disciples. He's praying for them. He says, but now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. This is Jesus praying for his disciples, knowing what they're going to face. I'm not praying you take them out of the world because that's what I'm putting them. I put them there. I'm putting them. I'm sending them out, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We need the word of God. We need the spirit of God. We need to know that we have a great high priest interceding for us. And we need to go out and know that Jesus is with us every step of the way. You sent me into the world. I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, Jesus said, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus sanctified himself. What does that mean? He sanctified his life to go to the cross for you and for me. 
I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. It should break our heart. Jesus went through all that. To set, he, he set his life aside to go to the cross for, in obedience to his father. That we ourselves might experience what he did for us in such a way that we are willing to go to the cross, if you will. To give our lives over to him. To pick up our cross daily and live for him in this world. Because that's what makes the difference. Not only in other people's lives, but it makes the difference in our lives. Anyway. God, can I pray, man? Lord, would you please, through the power of your Holy Spirit, sanctify us by your truth. Grant us, Lord, a passion and heart. Renew us again, Lord, even in those early days when we were so excited and so passionate. And Lord, we know it's so easy to get deluded. It's so easy to be deluded. Lord, we want to walk with you in the passion and power of the Holy Spirit. We want to ask, Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. Give us a burden for souls. Use us, Lord, in those little spheres of influence or maybe big spheres of influence that you've placed us that we might be your witnesses, that we might be salt and we might be light in the world in which we live. And to that, Lord, we're going to give you the glory. We're going to say, Lord, please work in me to will and do what pleases you. We're going to say, thank you, Jesus, that you never leave us or forsake us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 2, and he found a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. Claudius banished the Jews because they were indulging, quote, this is, this is from a, uh, um, a reference from a, uh, a historical document where, where Claudius wrote this, quote, they were indulging in constant riots at the instigation of Christos. So the banishment statement is saying, it's pointing to a dissension and disorder within the Jewish community at Rome, resulting from the introduction of Christianity into the synagogues in Rome. And so Claudius said, you're out of here. You're causing too much trouble. That's what he's saying here. And so Priscilla and Aquila, who were in Rome, wind up in Corinth. Now, it's very possible that they went there because of the commercial industry. And they were tent makers. So it's possible they went there, which is just smart. I mean, they were going somewhere where they could make, make some money to, to support themselves. Verse 3, so because they were of the same trade, Paul and them, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. So they arrived there. I believe they hired Paul, the apostle, to make tents. And he might have even lived with them. Now, Jewish law directed that young theological students, which Saul was, Paul, be taught a trade to support themselves. That's just smart too. So Paul the apostle, this great theologian, this Pharisee, also knew how to make tents. And so he was a tent maker to provide for himself. Now listen, while we are in the world, we work for God. While we're here, we work for God. God created us to to work in taking responsibility to provide for our lives and for our families. That's something that's God-given. And we will give an account for those things also. So I want to segue a little bit here. To you who worked for many, many years and you're retired. Well done. I say well done, good and faithful employee. 
or maybe owner. Good job and thank God for that. But remember this. There's no such thing as retirement in the Bible. We work for God. And hopefully as you're working in your jobs now, if you're not retired, you're working for God. It changes the atmosphere completely. I'm here for God. I'm working for him. And I'm going to be the best employee I can. I'm going to do the, I'm going to work, I'm going to seek to represent him correctly and work my tail off to be the best employee going. See, we work for God. Changes everything in this world. Now, here's what I say though. God's not done with you if you're retired. In fact, I think it's just started. It's just beginning for you. I think the best years are yet ahead of you. So don't sell yourself short or tall, whichever it might be. Here's what I say. Devote yourself in seeking God as to how he would have you invest your time, your life-learned wisdom, your experience, your giftings, and your talents. Don't be foolish and bury them. And when he comes back, hopefully present himself. That's not going to happen. He's saying, I've given these things to you in your life. Maybe you've had years and he said, I've given, I put, so God, where can I now take these things and invest them in the lives of people for your kingdom's sake? And I say, if you have, in a sense, buried them, I say, dig them up. Get them up now. Clean them off. And start saying, God, you see, it's not too late to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust don't corrupt, thieves don't break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. How I wish it said where your heart is, there your treasure will be. That's not what happens. <laughs> it's where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's what happens. So if I'm treasuring money, my heart's going to be in money. If I'm treasuring this, that, or the other thing, that's where my heart. If I'm treasuring the heavens and kingdom of God, that's where my treasure is going to be going continuously. And here's what I say to you and to, really to all of us. Always start by investing your time in prayer. Pray. Always end by investing more time in prayer. It makes, it's, I believe it's a deciding factor that I'm praying about these things. And so we are done only when God takes us out of the world. That's when we're done. You know, we were praying this morning for the service. People were praying for me. The picture came as I was just thinking through these things someone was sharing of Elijah. Now, Elijah didn't see death. Hebrews tells us that. We know from the story in Kings that he didn't see death. He went up in a chariot of fire. And whoa, I mean, that would be, that's the way to go, I think. What do you say? Yeah, just Lord coming. But listen, as he went up, what happened? His mantle fell on Elisha. Elisha said, give me double of the spirit. And God did. So I'm saying, Lord, I want some kind of mantle from my life to be able to fall when I'm done and make a difference, maybe someone else's life or many other people's lives, as happened with Elisha. His life then following Elijah ministered to many people in very practical ways. Okay, here we go. How are we doing? We're doing great. Okay. Jump down to verse 18 because we have Aquila and Priscilla here also. So it says in verse 18, so Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sancria, for he had taken a vow. This is very interesting to me. Paul took some kind of vow. We don't know what it was. Some think it was a Nazarite vow. Some think it was a, a vow of thanksgiving to God. It's, but listen, 
what, what the instruction is, is any vow is voluntary. It's a solemn promise or pledge that someone's making to God. They were to be made after careful consideration, not just sort of off the cuff, but you were to think about it. I'm going to do this for God. I'm going to, maybe I'm going to fast for God, or I'm going to do something. And so I'm making this vow to God. And it's to be fulfilled with joy and worship to God. That's why Jesus said, when you fast, don't put on the long face. Ooh, I'm fasting for God. Some of you shouldn't even know it because it's the joy and I'm doing this for God. It's that kind of, that's my vow. That's what I'm doing. Now, some criticize Paul for reverting back to legalism, reverting back to Judaism. Personally, I see a man, Paul, so dedicated, so committed, so fervent in his faith and love for God, that if anything, I can only fault my own lack of those things. He did this for God. He was doing something because he felt it was important in his own walk with the Lord. And so he's doing it for God. And when I think and look at Paul's life, I say, oh, I, really, I can only fault myself for the lack of some of these things that Paul so readily and clearly demonstrated. Listen, God is not asking us to critique everyone else. God is calling us to devote ourselves to him in doing the things he has commanded us to do. That's what we're doing. We are done critiquing and comparing ourselves to other people. Can I hear an amen? We're done. We live and answer to God. In John chapter 21, again, a favorite passage of mine. As Peter has denied the Lord, and Jesus told him he would, and now he's coming back with his head home, because and Jesus said, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? And Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? He's just like, Lord, you know so clearly I love you, but not like I boasted. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. He said, when you were younger, they used to go wherever you wanted, but when you're old, they're going to take you where you don't want to go, signifying by what death Peter would die. And so Peter, being restored to some degree, is back to old Peter, and I love it. So Peter's sitting there with Jesus. Peter's been restored. Go feed my, I'm not done with you, Peter, yet. He turns around. He looks at John, and I think they had this little rivalry going. He said, what about him? We're so, what about him? What about him? I'm going to go to, I'm going to have this, what about him? What about John? Jesus said, hey, if he's, lives until I come again. First he said to Peter, follow me. Then he says, if John lives, he's not, he, that's not what happened. But if he were, what does that matter to you? And then he said, not follow me. He said, you follow me. That's the mandate. We're not following. We're, we're done comparing ourselves, looking at, we're done turning around to see what someone, we're done. We're going to keep our hand to the plow and keep looking forward. That's what we're doing. We are done See, we want to be on mission. Can I hear an amen? On mission. So in verse 19, Paul comes to Ephesus, left him there. He says, I must all means, see, he's a man on mission. I must by all means get to Jerusalem. That's his passion. That's his fervency. He said, I'm going to do these things and how we need that. He was a man on mission. No one was going to turn him around, Paul. 
Now back to verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath, persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul, again, here it is, was compelled by the Spirit, a man on mission, and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 6. But when they opposed him and blasphemed him, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Interesting thing that happens here. Paul is shaking himself free of any other imposed guilt. He's putting the responsibility now for their guilt on their own heads. They had made their choice and they would live with the consequences. Listen, we are done when we have done everything we possibly can in obeying God. There comes a time Paul was done. He did his job. His conscience was clear. He did everything God asked him to do, and now it was not on him any longer. It was on. You see, there are times when we're done. We've done everything we possibly can. In fact, to do more might be more uh, hurtful than helpful. And this is the most difficult when it comes to those that we love. I can tell you as a parent, it's very difficult. We wish we could live for them. We wish we could make the choice for them. But there comes a time when, in a sense, we're done. We've done everything we can. Now, the one thing we never stop doing is praying. But we're done. We can't help them. They have to make their own choices and live with them. And I always say, Lord, I hope they don't have to learn the hard way. But probably what's going to happen, that's what happened for me. You got to learn the hard way sometimes. You go through those things and you learn your lesson. And you go, I'm never going back there again. I've learned it. I've got it. I know it. And you know what? I say every time, God, you were right. (laughs) You knew, just like with Peter, God knows. And so there are times We must let go and let God take care of it. And those are difficult to even discern many times because of our natural love and care. We're done, and there are times when it's okay to be done. Really, it's okay. But listen, don't stop praying. In fact, I have found in those times in my life with those that I love, it only increases that fervency and that desire. I'm going to pray for them every day until we see the turn. And some of you have been praying for those that you love for years. Years. Listen, don't stop praying. And pray that God would protect and keep them. Verse 7, and we departed from there, entered the house of a certain man named Justice. Verse 8, then Christmas, the rule of the synagogue. People are getting saved is what's happening here. Justice was probably a Gentile. And his house was right next door to the synagogue. We're kicking them out. What strategy does God have? That's great. Justice is, is right next door to that synagogue. Crisper, Christmas, miracle of miracles. The ruler of the synagogue gets saved. So people are getting saved. At this time, Stephanus believed and was baptized. Erastus believed and was baptized. So it's happening. Now, I want to spend a little time here. The Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Look at verse 9. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city, Paul. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. If the Lord spoke to Paul about not being afraid, then Paul was afraid. If the Lord spoke to Paul about not keeping silent, then Paul was at least contemplating, I'm done. Not going to talk anymore. If the Lord spoke to Paul about being attacked and hurt, then Paul must have been fearing and being attacked and hurt again. So the Lord comes to him, ministers him personally. And do you know what this tells me? 
Paul the Apostle was as human as I am. The great Paul the Apostle was as human as I am. It tells me that Paul the Apostle had down times. He had low times. His times when fear and discouragement and disillusion were crouching at his heart's door. Paul was rescued from the frenzied crowd in Jerusalem. And Jesus came to him again at night. Three times. In the quietness of the world, Jesus came to him at night and ministered to him. Don't be afraid. When Paul is on that ship to Rome, a seemingly doomed ship, and everyone's given up hope they would even be saved, Jesus came to him at night and ministered to him. See, in times of trouble, we are done. We will always have down times. But in times of trouble, we need a friend. We need a friend. And we have them. And they come to us. But listen, Jesus is our best friend. We need a friend. And that's what God would say. That's what Jesus said. He comes to Paul and says, don't be afraid. He says, don't keep silent. He says, you're not, you're not going to be attacked and hurt again. I'm with you. I know it. I see it all. Indeed, Jesus does. We all have our down times. Abraham, Joshua, David, Elijah, Peter, Paul, and just keep naming them. Everyone has down times. So you're in good company. Are you down for that? You got good company. We need friends. I thought, now this is going to date some of you. Carol King, remember the song, You've Got a Friend? When you're down in trouble, you need some love and care, and nothing, nothing is going right. Close your eyes and think of me, and soon I will be there to brighten up even your darkest night. If the sky above you grows dark and full of clouds, and that old north wind begins to blow, keep your head together and call my name out loud. Soon you'll hear me knocking at your door. You just call out my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call, and I'll be there. Yes, I will, because you've got a friend. And that's what this says to me. Jesus is our best friend. To know him is to know God as a friend. Now, what's it about a friendship? Jesus talked about this in John chapter 15. I'm not calling you servant. I'm calling you a friend. Because all things I've heard my father, I've made known to you. You see, a friendship is entered willingly. Jesus, I, you didn't... He said, I chose you. It was a willing choice. There's willing communication. There's willing commitment. And so when you, when you know Jesus, it's like, oh, Jesus is coming into the room. Better straighten up. See, as your friendship develops, it's like Jesus is coming. He's ministered to me. And it's like this friendship that just begins to undergird everything that's going on and lift us up into his arms. Come to me, all you who labor and heavily. I will give you rest. And there are times when things are so overwhelming, so difficult. We just need our best friend and calling on him and saying, Jesus. And he comes in, the, I find for myself, in those quiet times, almost unexpectedly, he comes and begins to minister to our hearts, to heal our hearts to strengthen us again, and we get up and we keep going. And he is faithful to
to do that. So in we're going to take communion, but, and I want to, after communion, I'm going to give an opportunity to anyone who doesn't know Jesus as your friend to come to him this morning. But before I do that, I want to speak to you first who don't have a relationship with God. I would be dishonest, in fact, I'd be unbiblical, to say to you that when you turn your life over to Jesus, your life is going to be rid of all its problems. Your problems will be over if you just come to Jesus. But see, that's not biblical, and it's not what any of us who know him experience. I saw, maybe many of you saw this. It was called Facing the Giants. It came out about 12 years ago. Wonderful story. Church actually put the whole thing together, and it made it into the theaters, which is a magnificent thing. But I was uncomfortable how I, when I left the movie theater because as I was watching it, and the movie progresses, it says that if you turn your life over to God, then you're going to win the championship. If you turn your life over to God, then you're going to get your red truck. If you turn yourself over to God, then your wife who couldn't conceive will conceive. See, that's not really reality many, many, many times. God blesses us with, in ways that it's this relationship with him that's forged to a deeper level. And sometimes the worst thing he could do is give me a red truck <laughs> or have me win the championship. So I'll not promise you anything like that. God knows. But I will tell you, if you don't already know, that the way of the sinner is hard. That sin is a hard taskmaster. I will tell you, if you're not already found out, that life apart from Jesus is empty. It knows no meaning. It has no hope. And it offers no answers to the things that really matter in your life. Jesus is the difference who makes all the difference. He said, this is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's eternal life. It's knowing God, having that relationship with him. You see, because of sin, life is hard, and then we die. But because of Jesus, life is hard, but now we live. That's the difference. Do you love the Lord this morning? What a friend we have in Jesus. All our griefs to, to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him, to God in prayer, through him. So would you bow your heads and hearts and minds right now and just pray to God. I'm praying for anyone that might be here today who doesn't know Jesus and how we want them to know the Lord. We know he is the one who makes all the difference. He's the door. He's the shepherd, the good shepherd. He's the living water. He's the bread from heaven. So we're praying because there's a battle that is going on for people's souls this morning. And if that's you, you haven't, you know you're not right with God this morning. You don't know when you die what's gonna happen. You're fearful of many things. You've got emptiness in your life that you don't know what to do with. You've got problems you don't even know how to handle them. Or maybe your life is going along pretty well, but yet there's this, this, uh, this little unction in your heart that you, if you were to die, you'd be doomed. That's why we're praying for you. So there's three things I'm going to ask you, very simple things. Number one, raise up your hand. Say, I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to get right with God. 
Secondly, I'm going to ask you to stand up because in standing up, as you obey God to confess Jesus before men, as you do that, all the excuses, all the fears, all the lies that the devil's been telling will be vanquished because now you're doing what you know you need to do and God himself will manifest it himself to you personally. So I'm going to ask you to lift, raise up your hand, stand up, and then I'm going to ask you to walk up to one of the tables on the sides where you there can give your life to Jesus Christ this morning and be saved from everything that you have that needs forgiveness, your sin. So as we're praying, just for another moment before we take communion, if that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to slip up your hand, and would you keep it up so I can see that, because I want to acknowledge you. I want to say yes to Jesus this morning. I want to give my life to him who created me and loves me, who died on the cross for my sin. I'm ready. I want to do it. Just slip up your hand. We're, We're praying. continue just another moment of prayer you you're just you're wrestling maybe right now just get it get it up I see that hand I want you to up just keep that up I see that okay we're praying Tracy if you would stand just give it up for Jesus here's a here's a sister that wants to get right with God this morning anyone else we're praying Tracy, would you make your way to the table over there? Praise the Lord. So we're going to take communion, but before we do, we're going to sing a worship song while the emblems are passed out. So I'm going to ask you to hold those in a just prayerful worship because as we're taking communion, we're remembering Jesus' death until he comes. So we're looking back to what he's accomplished for us already, done, taken care of. We're looking forward to what he's promised for us, guaranteed through the Holy Spirit, we're, we're in between right now. And that's why God said, because he knows our deep need to remember. God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It says Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for us when we were, see, no. He died for us in all of our sin, in all of our mess, because he loves us. And that's the only way that we have this relationship with God. So we're remembering in communion. So as the emblems are taken, are passed out and you receive, just hold them Pour your heart out to God in any way that would be needed for you this morning. And then I'll come up and we'll take them together as the body of Christ this morning. So let's worship him as they're passed out.